past. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 16. If you have a Bible, if you don't, maybe you have one on your smartphone or your device, or maybe you just want to look on the screen this morning, uh, but we're going to go to the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 13. I love watching and finding the, the patterns of Scripture and finding uh, the context of Scripture. And Jesus has fed 4,000, and then he is confronted after this wonderful miracle by religious leaders of the day that seemed to be quite upset with who he was. And it's interesting when you, you, you follow the life of Jesus, you have highs and lows. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean there were highs and lows in his life. But you have people that were marveled by his miracles and then also those who were very critical of him. And yet, uh, as one preacher said one time, the mess won't stop him. In other words, the, the critical comments, the, the difficult things that Jesus went through never stopped his miracle power. I'm glad that we don't have to wait for everything to get perfect for Jesus to work in our life. Amen? Amen. I'm thankful that he can work at, at really at any time. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? In other words, what am I to you? Who am I to you? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. Everyone say the Christ. The Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. One more verse, verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Would you say those five words with me? I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. I am thankful that no matter what our enemy the devil throws against the church... Jesus said, that plan, that arsenal, those weapons will not prevail. Amen. Doesn't say they won't come, but it does say they will not prevail. That means as long as you're in Jesus' church, you're on the winning side. I'm thankful for that today. I'm thankful to be a part of the church. And I want to just preach for a few minutes on the church. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you for standing and following along in the scriptures. Do I have an amen corner today? Amen. Amen. Good, good. That's most of you. I've been quite contemplative. Maybe it's middle age. I don't know. But I've been quite contemplative lately. And I've been kind of going back through my mind of some memories. And um, one of the constant things in my life, all of my life, has been the church. Uh, I was six weeks old when I first went to church, and the only reason it took me that long is because I was born very premature, and I had to spend some time in the hospital, and then as soon as I got out of the hospital and my mother was feeling up to it, she brought me to the house of God. 
And ever since that time, for 52 years, I have been in church services. Uh, I love church. I love church services. I love the people of the church. Uh, you know, you, you, see, you see interesting stuff happen at church. I, 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 would, I would say to you today some of the funniest things that could ever happen happen in church. They really do. Um, some of the most powerful things that have ever happened in my life happen in a church service. Uh, speaking of humor, I remember one Sunday night in particular, my brother and I were playing instruments. Uh, I grew up, and I, when I was in band, I played the trumpet, and my brother played the saxophone. And so we had a little orchestra area up on the platform where we would play along with the, the songs. And my brother was coming off of the platform one Sunday evening during the prayer time at the close, the altar commitment prayer time. And uh, he was carrying his saxophone. And he came down off of the steps, and somehow he inadvertently missed the last step. And he sprawled himself out face first right in the middle of where everybody was praying. And uh, talking to my brother after the fact, he said, as I hit the floor, I had to make a decision. And the decision was, do you jump up and admit that you just fell, or do you just stay there? <laughs> and just blend in a little bit. And so this was a time of great consecration and prayer. People were kneeling and crying out to the Lord. And my brother is just laying in the front of the church. So he chose the latter. He chose to just go with the moment and lay in the front of the church. And I am so thankful for the well-meaning people of a church who gathered very quickly that Todd coming off the platform must have got a hold of something or something got a hold of him. And so they just went up and kind of just started rubbing on his back a little bit. Touch him, Lord. Just minister to Todd right now. I never have let my brother live that one down. But you see some of the funniest things in church services and then, of course, the, the powerful things. But it has been a constant in my life. It has been a constant. I've heard people say, and I'll, I'll maybe preach a little bit about this today. Well, I'm, I'm trying to decide choosing a church. Well, I don't, I don't know that that's exactly the right way to look at it. I think there's something about the presence of God reaching out and apprehending us and drawing us rather than just an elective process where I choose something. But one of the decisions that points uh, us in the direction we need to go when Choosing a church, and I'll just use that terminology, or being a part of a church, is a big word called theology. Everyone say theology. theology. Theology comes from two primary words. One is a main word, theos, which is the Greek word for God, and the other is a suffix, ology, and that refers to the study of. And so theology is the study of God, and every local church uh, determines practices from theology or the study of God, everything about God, what the Word of God says, what God says about himself. It's the theology. 
It's, it's some of the, uh, the pivot points that, that make for decision-making in a local church. Uh, there, there's all different types of theology, and there are people that are dotting the pews and chairs of churches literally around the globe on this Sunday that their decision to attend that local church is based on theology. Let me give you some of them that are at play in the world today. First of all, there is sacramental theology. Sacramental theology is exactly what the word says, the study of sacraments. That word sacrament is embedded in that word sacramental. This is the systematic study of sacraments. Uh, that through these practices, there could be visible signs of God, visible signs of divine power. And this helps experience, helps people experience God's presence in their lives. One of the prevailing faith systems that practices sacramental theology is the Roman Catholic Church. There are seven basic sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, which is the taking of communion, reconciliation, or also known as confession, anointing the sick, the holy orders through the laying on of hands when conferring uh, Titles upon bishops and priests and deacons. And then uh, marriage is also a sacred sacrament. And then there are other faith groups that practice what I would simply call creedal theology. Everyone say creedal theology. Creedal theology or the creedal study of God really began around 100 A.D. to 300 or 400 A.D. And, and there is a word embedded in this word. Creed is embedded in the word creedal. And it refers to simply a, a, a phrase in Latin that simply means I believe. And so a creed is a statement of belief. It's basically a summary of beliefs, And just suffice it to say that during this two to three hundred year window of time, people would come together and, and, and work through what they would say is a statement of belief. And they were creeds, they were councils that came together. One of these was the Apostles' Creed that came out of a gathering in 215 A.D. Basically, a summary of Christian belief. And then you had the Nicene Council, and from the Nicene Council came the Nicene Creed of 325 A.D. It was revised in 381. And then you have the Chalcedonian Creed that resulted from a gathering in 451 A.D. that specifically dealt with the dual natures of Christ, him being God and man. And so there are entire groups of people that base their practices upon creeds and creedal theology. Are you with me so far? And then there is a theology that has been a little more prevalent in the last 25 to 30 years, and that is evolving or emerging theology. This is a study of God that is basically fluid. There is little or some things are nailed down as absolutes. But by and large, the, the, the practices or the beliefs or the priorities in emerging theology are uh, mixed with culture and mixed with the modern day. And, and there's, a, there's a desire to make sure what is happening in the world is is also represented in the church. And I say that not necessarily altogether negative, but wanting to have a connection 
between what seems to be an ancient belief system and a modern culture. A lady by the name of Alessandra E.N. quoted it like this, as culture changes, a new church should emerge in response. In this case, it is a response by various church leaders to the current era of postmodernism. Although postmodernism began in the 1950s, the church didn't really seek to conform to its tenets until the mid-1990s. Postmodernism can be thought of as a dissolution of cold, hard fact in favor of relative, fluid subjectivity. Do you understand where this is coming from? That there is less about what is set and more about what is evolving or what is going to come to pass or going to kind of become the, uh, the, 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 the blueprint or the, the architectural piece of the church. Uh, you'll hear many times people when they talk about emerging theology of things like the coming of age of the church or the redefining of the church. And so I think it's important in this mixture of belief and in this mixture of ideas and specifically theology that it falls my lot by choice today to rise in this pulpit to once more declare across this pulpit what I believe to be the proper theology to interpret God. I don't believe, I don't believe for a second that God wants to be hidden from us. I don't think God wants his plan for his church to be hidden from us. I think all we have to do is open scripture and we will see a God who over and over wants to and does reveal himself to mankind. I'm so thankful for this today. I'm thankful that young adults can know this God and elders can know this God. And children like Richard can know this God. And people who are brand new to the claims of Christ can get to know this God. He's not hidden today. He's not a God on a vacation or some God who cherry picks who gets to understand him. But I believe he is here today. And he is calling for whosoever will to understand his word and come close to him and be drawn close by his presence. And so I, I believe it's very important that we ask the right questions today and we seek the correct answers. Allow me on this Sunday morning to pose two very key questions that I think are very, very important when we are establishing our belief of the church. Here we go. Number one, who is the architect of the church? Who is the architect of the church? Let me put it a different way. Is there a blueprint already there? Is there a pattern there? Is there something that we can go by that can be our guide for what a church should be? Now, here's why this is important, and I want you to hear me today. And I, I'm intentionally just slowing down and I'm pacing myself because I don't want this to appear as some emotionalism on Sunday morning. But this is super important to this pastor that we get this right here. Here's the point I want to make and I want you to hear this loud and clear. You do not want to be a part of a church if it is simply built on my blueprint. Yeah. 
Now, that's all right. You're not hurting my feelings a bit clapping on that one right there. I'll be the one to clap my hands on that one. And here's the reason why. I know that by and large, except perhaps the ones I haven't met that you don't really know me, by and large, I think you love me. And I think you accept me. And I think you love my family. But I am not without fault. (laughs) And there's not a man or woman in this room that does not have a fallen nature by birth. That's why we cannot build a church on a man or a woman. We cannot build a church on something that has at its architecture what my ideas are or what seems good to me. Now, I can come into agreement with something. That's a different issue. But I have to ask this question today. Who is the architect? Is there a blueprint? Is there a pattern? I am here today as a pastor who does what I'm doing right now for a living. And I am saying, I want to make sure that if there is a blueprint, I am lining up to that blueprint. I don't want to preach arbitrarily. I haven't come to preach to make people feel good. I haven't come because this is just the only thing I know to do and I can't go work at some uh, car park place. I've done that before and that was a tragedy when I did that. But what I am saying is this, it is important to me, it is imperative to me, it is a priority to me that somehow if there is a blueprint and if there is a pattern, we find out what that is so that we can follow that plan. Number two, the second question that I think is key is this, upon what is the church built? Upon what is the church built? When you and I leave this house today and we walk out the front door of what we affectionately call the pie. I don't know how many of you know what the pie is. We have a pie here at our church. Many times you walk through it and you don't even know you're walking through a pie. That glass entryway out there is in that shape right there. And it is the piece of pie when we were building this church. We would refer to, we need to make sure we put this in the pie. Wow, some of y'all, like revelation is happening right now. (laughs) But if you walk out the pie and you go walk into that parking lot, notice where I'm pointing, that parking lot right there, you're going to be walking on solid ground. And everybody who was here when we first got in this building and you had to walk on gravel, ladies, in your high heels, you ought to thank God that there's solid ground. But do you know why you're walking on solid ground? Brother John will remember this because we had to spend over $100,000 to pull bad dirt out of that area and put solid footing in that area. We didn't plan on that. When we were planning the church, we didn't say, now let's make sure we have $100,000 setting aside because we're going to run into some soupy dirt out here. We're going to have to pull that out and replace it with good stuff. No, we didn't run it. We we didn't plan on that, but it came to pass. And here's the thing. I want to make sure that your car is not sinking in the ground. I want to make sure that when you pull into the parking lot, you can access the door of your car when you get out and it's not below the ground. 
And so because of that, we got to make sure the foundation is firm and it is rigid and it's not going anywhere. And so I think just as the parking lot in a strange sort of example, you and I must build our life upon a church that has a foundation that is sure. It's not going anywhere. It's not moving anywhere. So who's the architect and upon what is the church built? Which brings me to what I believe is the proper theology in a church. And that is simply this, restoration theology. Restoration theology. Here's what I mean by that. There is a pattern shown in the Bible. And there is a blueprint for the church shown in the Bible. And yet over the years since the beginning of that church as found in the book of Acts in the New Testament, over the time and the centuries that have gone by, it seems as though we as a culture have drifted farther and farther away from the plan that God gave for the church away from the practice that God showed in the church, away from the doctrines that God showed in the church. And it's amazing how one degree here or one degree there may not seem like a lot in one year, but you get a hundred years down the road and you get a thousand years down the road and now what seemed to be just a, a liberty here or a little difference here, if it's not anchored to what the pattern is, it can produce beliefs and doctrines and ideas that are very different from what the pattern showed in Scripture. And so I believe that the basic premise of theology that is rooted in restoration is this belief that God has a pattern for his church and that Christianity unfortunately has fallen away from God over the years and fallen away from his pattern for the church. And we must return to walking in his pattern and we must return to walking in his way and walking in his word and walking in his truth you see this concept of restoration is not foreign to the bible it's all throughout scripture the history of israel that we read about in the front two-thirds of our bible in the old testament is a story of a people who had repeated departures away from what God said they should do. A people who were given the word of the Lord, given the blueprint, and yet would backslide away from it. And time and time again, they would slink back away from what God declared. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, the writer says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. You now have become the betrayers and the murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. The Old Testament is a story of the people of God departing from his word. The Old Testament is also a story of appeals by God's messengers for those people of God to return back to God. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 22, Jeremiah says, return you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. He goes on to declare in the sixth chapter of his prophetic writing, Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, 
and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. And so God loves people enough to send them a prophet. Send them somebody to speak to them and say, I had a plan for you, but you backslid away from it. But come back to God. Come back to the Savior. Come back to your Lord. He over and over would send them a messenger. This Old Testament that you and I read this morning is a story of subsequent returns where they would come back to God. And though usually it was just a remnant of the people, not the people in mass. Romans chapter 9 and verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. I, I, I won't preach it this morning, but I want to challenge this church family and the people under the sound of my voice this week to open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22 and chapter 23. This is your homework assignment for this week at New Life. 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 23 tells of a man, a young boy actually by the name of Josiah who was eight years old when he became the king of Judah. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Josiah was eight years old. He was in third grade when he became the king of Judah. Sixteen years goes by and he's now a young adult and the scripture says that within uh, the context of his days, he sent people to do some cleanup work and to, to work around the kingdom and work through some, some, some restoring type of, of, of labor. And while they were doing that, someone walked across in a building and found a copy of the Lord's law. And he brought it back to Josiah and said, when we were cleaning up, when we were getting ready for the collection of the offerings and going through all the mechanics of, of, of what you've asked us to do, we ran across a copy of God's law. It's got a little dust on it, and it's been not used for quite a while. And when Josiah heard this, he was absolutely beyond console. He, he, was, he was just all dumbstruck by the moment. And the Bible says that he was, he was so full of anguish and fear because he knew what that meant. That God had a law that they should have been living by, but it had been neglected for far too long. And he began to repent. And he sent uh, someone to a prophetess and said, find out what God's going to do. We, we've walked away from his law. We found it almost by accident. And now surely the judgment of God is going to come against us. And when this prophetess, and you can read this in your homework assignment, when this prophetess uh, hears this cry, what's God going to do against us from Josiah? She inquires of the Lord and sends a word back and says, yes, the judgment of God is going to come because he's a righteous God. He's a just God. He gives his word and he will not go back on his word. But because, Josiah, you have humbled yourself, and because you have made a decision to come back to the law and preserve the law and have as a priority the law in your life, God's going to show mercy on you. And God's going to show favor upon you. I, I, I preach this on this Sunday morning, not to get us encumbered by what happened in the Old Testament, but rather to give us a modern day challenge. I believe if we today will say, regardless of our relationship with what the church should be, 
regardless of what we've done or not done in the past. There is a window of grace that God is extending today. And there is a call from heaven's banister today saying, if you will walk in the way of the Lord, I will have mercy upon you. If you will reestablish the pattern that I have given in the Bible, I will have mercy upon you. Oh, I want to preach it strong today. I desire to be the kind of church here in Cabot that is the same kind of church that was in the Bible. I desire to preach the message here in Cabot that was preached in that Bible. I desire to see the results of the preaching like they saw the results of the preaching in the Bible. Amen. Amen. So what is, what is the New Testament pattern? If there is a pattern, if there is an architect, what is the New Testament pattern? Matthew chapter 21. And verse 42 declares to us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. The cornerstone is the stone from which the entire building is constructed. It's the vantage point. It's the marker. It's the place that everybody looks back to. If you want to get a proper measurement, go to the cornerstone. Uh, If you want to get a proper adjustment to a modification, make sure that you're going back to the chief cornerstone. Go back to the thing that is solid and sure and will not be moved and measure from there. And according to Scripture, Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. The psalmist declared it in Psalm 118 and verse 22 and Acts chapter 4 and verse 11 repeats it, the stone which the builders refused or rejected has become the chief corner. Let me say it strongly today. It doesn't matter who rejects Jesus. He's still the chief cornerstone. It doesn't matter who says that he's just an ancient leader and not really God in flesh. It doesn't matter who says that. He's still the chief cornerstone because the Bible says there were builders. There were people that refused him and rejected him as anything but just a Jewish teacher. But that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. Everything is measured back to Jesus. Everything goes back to Jesus. That's why John said he came to his own. Jesus came to his own. His own did not receive him. It was in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus declared it. We read it in our text that he would build his church and hell would not prevail against it. And so I will answer the first question. Who is the architect? Jesus is the architect of the church. Jesus is the architect of the church. Now, I want to just systematically in the remaining moments that we have walk through Scripture and and try to help us to get cemented in our feelings and our, our faith about this church and about the church. First of all, Jesus spoke the word. Everyone say with me, Jesus spoke the word. Jesus declared many things while he walked on this earth. Some were very verbose. They were long discourses of speaking. Others were very, very simple and short. But he had many, many words to say. He gave commands to his disciples 
And I guess he trusted them enough to give them the commands. And then after resurrection from the dead, ascend into heaven. So the body's not there anymore. The thing that for three and a half years of ministry that they had got used to seeing him multiply bread and fish and seeing him raise the dead and seeing him unstop deaf ears, what they had grown accustomed to was now not there anymore, but rather he said to them, I declare to you, now you go and declare to others. I want us to get this. Jesus spoke. But secondly, the apostles received what he spoke. And they went forth and walked out what Jesus declared. This is why, and I hope this is understandable today, this church anchors our beliefs in the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. But we also anchor our beliefs in the apostles that heard Jesus speak because they were the ones that walked out the commands that he gave. It's not either or, it's both and. It's the word declared and it's the word confirmed. This is why the church that's built on that is the church that God designed. Now, I wish to just lift some truths about the church. Now that we've hopefully established that, Jesus spoke the word, the apostles preached and walked out that word. And here's some truths about the church. Number one, the church began as a result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. If you want to know when the church began, the church did not begin in 1999 in the living room on Lassiter Lane in Cabot. That's when this local church began. But the church, the global church, began in Jerusalem at Pentecost when the baptism of the Holy Spirit was poured out. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I want you to notice that this baptism of the Holy Spirit came upon people of all different cultures and all different languages, so much so that when they began to speak with other tongues, people of other tongues, people of different languages, heard them praising God in their languages. So this tells me that a church that focuses on every tongue being able to hear God's glory and every tongue being able to hear God's word, does this make sense why we would sing in Spanish every once in a while? Does this make sense why we, why we would have a Spanish congregation and a service once a month that people could come to? Some have come to Iglesia Nueva Vida that speak no English at all. And I would say according to the blueprint of Scripture, every culture needs to be in the church. Every tongue needs to hear God's word. Every person, in fact, I'll just say, I'll go a step further, and this is not meant to be a, a, a verbose and, and commandeering type of statement, but we need to get past real quick judgmentalism against other cultures because that is absolutely not in the DNA of the early church. 
That's not a 2022 statement. That's a Bible statement. It is for whosoever will. Whosoever will. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit was the origin of the church. If you go back and say, when did the church begin? It began right there in the book of Acts, chapter number 2. Secondly, the pattern of God's church includes explanatory, hopeful, and convicting preaching. Amen. The first sermon, you know how we prove this? We go to the first sermon that was preached in the church age. Book of Acts. From Acts chapter 2, verse 15 to 20, Peter explains from the Old Testament scriptures how this is all coming to pass. It's explanatory. There is preaching that comes across this pulpit, hopefully, that is explanatory, that we can walk out and we can understand. Oh, I didn't realize that's what the scripture says. There's an explaining of that. Explanatory preaching is part of the blueprint of the church. Hopeful preaching is part of the New Testament church. Y'all are being so kind. Most of you are just staring a hole in my forehead right now. <laughs> Acts chapter 2 and verse number 21. And it shall come to pass... That whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is Peter preaching and quoting from the prophet Joel. He is preaching a hopeful message. So I got good news for someone that's bound today. There's hope for you. I got good news for someone that's sick of all the negativity. There's hope for us. I declare to you a hopeful message. A hopeful message. And then the pattern of God's church also includes convicting preaching. Verse 36 of Acts 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know, Peter's coming in for the landing of his sermon, assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice it cut them to the heart. It convicted them of the way they had been living. It convicted them for what they had done in mass as a people. Convicting preaching is a part of the DNA of God's church. But please note this. Please, please note this. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, everyone say they, they, here's the question I ask, who were the they? The they were the Jews who were obedient to the point of their understanding. But they were open for more. That's why they were in the upper room. They understood to a degree, but they were open for more. They had heard, they'd heard Jesus say, don't stay up here on this mountain, but go into Jerusalem and tarry there until you are endued with power from on High. That made sense to them because they were Jewish people and they knew what Isaiah had prophesied in the 44th chapter. Listen, Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what the Lord says, who made you, who formed you in the womb and who will help you. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I 
will pour out of my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. This was a group of people that were open for more. That's hopeful to me. Amen. Thirdly, the pattern of God's church involves personal response and personal responsibility. Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, they said, what do we have to do? Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, then they, 3,000 of them, that gladly received his word were baptized. Personal response. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they continued steadfastly. Personal decision, personal responsibility. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, they continued daily with one accord. Personal response to what God was doing in their lives. Personal responsibility. We cannot get away from this. We cannot get away from this. God loves us enough to get in our business and demand a response from us. Yeah. That's, by the way, that's not him being mean. That's him being God. What are you going to do? This whole idea of personal responsibility is really in the very fabric of the church. And then finally, the pattern of God's church involves the supernatural power of God seen and experienced. I am so hungry for the demonstration of God's power. I'm hungry for it. Pastor Nate, I'm hungry for it. Pastor Larry, I'm hungry for it. I'm hungry to see exactly what happened in the book of Acts happen in the world today. They're going to throw it on the screen. Acts 2 and 2, there was a sound of a rushing mighty wind. Acts 2 and 3, tongues of fire seen over those that were filled with the Holy Ghost. Acts 2 and 4, people spoke in other tongues. Acts 3, verses 1 through 10, the lame man was healed. Acts 4 and verse 31, the building was shaken. Acts 5, verse 1 through 11, the sudden death of Ananias and Sapphira. We don't like preaching about that one, but that's in the Bible. Acts 5 and verse 17, the imprisoned apostles were freed by an angel supernaturally. Acts chapter 8 and verse 40, Philip, I preached on him last Sunday morning, was transported from the desert to Azotus. Acts 9, a light came from heaven and a voice at Saul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, verse 8, Saul's blinded and then he's healed. Sight is restored to him. Acts 9, Aeneas is healed of paralysis. Acts 9, Dorcas is restored to life. Acts 12, Herod's violent death supernaturally. Acts chapter 13, Elamis, the sorcerer, is blinded. Acts 14, the crippled man at Lystra is healed. Acts 16, demons are cast out of a slave girl. Acts 16, Paul is freed from prison by an earthquake. Acts 20, the preacher preached way too long and Eutychus fell from a, a, a story. You think I'm kidding? Bible says that Paul preached a long time. As a preacher, when you start falling out of chairs, that's my indication it's time to wrap it up. 
Eutychus falls out of a tower and he, he, he dies on the ground after Paul's preaching for so long. What did they do? They didn't just walk up and say, oh, how bad. You know, if he really was spiritual, he would have stayed awake the whole three hours. No, they walked up and they, 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 they just prayed. They just believed. They just took God at his word and said, you can raise him up. And God raised, Eut raised Eutychus up. Acts 28, Paul is unaffected by a viper's bite on his arm. Acts 28, the father of Publius is healed of his infirmity. I started looking over this list in the book of Acts. There's 20 of them listed there in the book of Acts. I've seen 10 of those kind of things happen with my eyes. And I have asked God to let me see the other 10 happen with my eyes. I'm ready for the dead to be raised, and I see it, and I experience it. You say, oh, Brother Gaddy, you need to calm down. That's just, we just let nature have its course. No, I know there's time that God is sovereign, and he takes people, and they go into eternity, but I am praying that God will restore to his church every supernatural sign and wonder that that book says the church can have. Come on, come on, new life. I was in the Philippines about four or five years ago, and we were in a Saturday night service, and praise and worship started going strong in that building, and I saw what the book of Acts saw. And that building that I was in was literally shaking with the power of God. I literally saw it with my eyes. The walls were shaking with the power of God. I don't want that to be relegated just to Manila in the Philippines. I don't want those kind of things to happen just overseas. I want a visitation of God's power and his glory among his people. Come on, I need some people to step into faith right now. We need to see signs and wonders like the Bible says we can have. We need to see the supernatural power of God like the Bible says we can have. We need to have teenagers laying hands on the sick. We need to have elders having dreams and visions. Praise God, praise God. Come on, new life. Don't let the culture dumb down the church. Don't let the culture put a lid upon the church. The church is a supernatural body, a supernatural people. If you're hungry for that, I wish you'd stand with me right now and begin to call on the name of the Lord and declare that hunger to the Lord right now. Come on, I wish there'd be some people that would lift up your voice today and say, God, I, pastor's not the only one that wants it. I want it, Lord. I want the visit of your spirit upon your people, God. <laughs> come on, everybody. Come on, lift up your voice. Those of you hungry for the visit of God's spirit. Come on, I want your children to experience it. I want your mamas and your daddies to experience it. I want our youth group to experience it. I want us to expect it with everything inside of us. I want our sons and daughters to prophesy. I want our old men to dream dreams and our young men to see visions. It's the blueprint of the church. It's the blueprint of what God has for his church. And we can grab a hold of it today. That's the church. That's the church. That's the church.
Now listen, listen. There's times that I feel a little bit more like an evangelist when I preach. This is not one of them. I feel squarely like a pastor right now. Let me preach to our students right now. We preached to our young adults, and I don't preach to you like this because I'm mad at you. I don't preach to you because I don't think you got a hold of it. I think most of you have a firm grasp on what the church is. But listen to your pastor right now. Do not stray from one thing that book says the church should be. You're looking at a middle-aged guy who can, I can look around, and I can see people who used to believe what you and I hold dear today but began to change just a little bit here and change just a little bit there and change just a little bit there. And they have grandkids now. And those grandkids don't know half of what you know. And they don't value what you value. We need to be a church that is open saying, bring the sick. That doesn't bother us. Bring the people in the wheelchairs. It's not our power, but we're just going to be obedient to his word and pray for him. And we're going to let God be God. And we're going to be the church that God's called us to be. We need to be that kind of church. The church that's found in the scriptures. Let me be bold today because I know I'm preaching to people that are members of this church. And I know I'm preaching to people that are guests of this church. But can I preach to anybody who's trying to choose a church? Believe me, please trust me when I say this to you in love. You want to be a part of a church that's found in the Bible. Please hear this preacher. I know that's subjective. I know you may have your opinion. But when blind eyes start opening. And when people come in hooked on alcohol. And they are delivered by the power of God. I can't give someone a little cute little sermon and do that. That's the power of God. When we have people that have given decades of their life over to abhorrent living and they turn back to Jesus and they find victory and they find freedom and they find restoration and they find direction for their life. When that happens, you can't do that with a cute little sermonette on a Sunday morning. That is nothing but God's power on display. And I want that for this church. I want that for this church. Praise God. So here's how I'd like us to finish today. If you're here and you love Jesus and you trust Jesus, because he's the architect, this altar appeal is for you. If you're here and you love the church and you want to be a part of that kind of church, regardless of whether it ends up being this local church, you, if, you have, if you want to know what the option is, this is going to be that kind of church with God's help and our decision. But you want to be a part of that kind of church, wherever that might be, this altar appeal is for you too. Saying, God, I'm hungry. I'm giving myself to you. I'm yielding myself to you and I'm crying out to you. If your spirit bears witness in that, there ought not to be one second of hesitation.